This is the Islamic History Podcast, Season 2, Episode 6, powered by IslamicLearningMaterials.com. Welcome to the Islamic History Podcast from Islamic Learning Materials. This is where we take the history of Islam, peel back the layers, and add a little bit of spices, and serve it up in tiny little bite-sized pieces. And here's the man who's going to do all the cooking, Mutaki Ismail. Assalamu alaikum. Welcome back to the Islamic History Podcast. I am your host, Mutaki Ismail. And the first thing I want to say is that I'm glad you have joined me in this trip down the road of the first 100 years of Islam after the death of Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wasallam. First thing I want to say after saying what I just said, I want to let you know that today's episode is going to be much shorter than normal. We are going to a weekly format. I know these episodes have been sometimes very few and far between. Sometimes you've been waiting over a month. I'll go into all the details, inshallah, after the show's over in the outro portion. So just listen to it in completion and you will see why and how we are going to a weekly format so that you will get the episode and the updates on a regular basis and not have to wait three, four, sometimes five weeks for a new episode. So for now, let's go ahead and get into this episode of the Islamic History Podcast. This will be more like a timeline episode, just really detailing the events in both Syria and Persia between the years 636 and 637, corresponding to roughly 15 AH on the Islamic calendar. So for now, let's just go ahead and listen to the show. Show notes for this episode will be available at islamiclearningmaterials.com slash 15AH. And so with that, here we go with the Islamic History Podcast, Season 2, Episode 6. Let's first begin with a recap of where we are so far. After the death of Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alaihi wasallam in the year 632, his closest companion and best friend Abu Bakr was chosen as the caliph or the successor of the prophet. However, after Abu Bakr was chosen as caliph, several of the Arabian tribes in the area who had previously pledged allegiance to Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alaihi wasallam decided to rebel against Abu Bakr. Abu Bakr then sent his general, Khalid ibn Walid, to bring these rebellious tribes back in line, and these campaigns were known as the Wars of Apostasy or the Wars of Ridda. When these rebellious tribes, also known as Murtadin or apostates, were subdued, Abu Bakr then began a simultaneous invasion of both Syria and Persia to the north. Khalid ibn Walid led the invasion into Persia and he had much success. However, the Muslim commander in Syria, Abu Ubaidah, met strong resistance from the Romans. Eventually, Khalid ibn Walid joined up with Abu Ubaidah and together they were able to conquer Syria all the way up to the city of Damascus. During this period, Abu Bakr died and Omar ibn al-Khattab became the next caliph or successor of the Prophet 
and he deposed Khalid ibn Walid as the general of the Muslim armies and put Abu Ubaidah in charge instead. Soon after that, the Romans and the Persians struck back at the Muslims who were forced to pull back their forces all the way to the edges of the desert and abandon much of the territory that they had recently conquered. These events led to the decisive battles of Yarmouk in Syria and Cordesia in Persia. The Muslims won both of these battles, however, at great cost. Nonetheless, it set the board for future Muslim dominance throughout these areas. The Persian defeat at the Battle of Cordesia left their capital, Tessiphon, fully exposed to the Muslim forces. Furthermore, the army that the Muslims defeated at the Battle of Cordesia was a large number, a huge army of Persian soldiers, and it would take a long time for the Persians to drum up that much military again. So now, there was nothing in between the capital, Tessiphon, and the Muslim forces, and furthermore, the Sassanid dynasty did not even have the manpower to defend the city. However, the Romans in Syria were a little bit better off. Even though the defeat at Yarmouk was devastating for the Romans as well, they still had a large number of forces and they still had the ability and the strength to fight the Muslims back effectively. Furthermore, the Roman capital was in Constantinople, which was hundreds and hundreds of miles away from the Muslim front lines. So even though the Romans had lost almost all of their territory in Syria, they still were able to fight back effectively against the Muslims. However, the Persians, they were just simply fighting to survive. So we're going to look at the events in Syria after the Battle of Yarmouk first, and then we're going to shift our focus to the events in Persia after the Battle of Cordesia. The Muslim success at the Battle of Yarmouk led to a string of victories for the Muslims as the Romans were chased north out of Syria and towards Anatolia, which is modern-day Turkey. The Battle of Yarmouk was waged in August 636. Then Jerusalem was captured peacefully by Omar ibn al-Khattab in April 637 the following year. Soon after that, the Muslims were again victorious at Qunasirin in June 637. A few months later, at Aleppo, the Muslims were victorious once again, and this included the controversial conversion of the Roman general, Joachim. Each victory brought the Muslims further and further north and closer and closer to what we would now call the Turkey-Syrian border. By now, the Muslims were able to lay siege to the city of Antioch, which is right on the border between modern-day Turkey and modern-day Syria. The month of October 637 was a very good month for the Muslims as they captured three cities in one month. First, Aleppo, and then Azaz, and finally, Antioch, which was the biggest prize of all because this was the Asian capital for the Romans. 
And so now the Muslims were right on the border between Syria and Anatolia, and they had plans on going further into Anatolia, into what we would now call the nation of Turkey. But there were still some holdouts further south along the Mediterranean coast of Syria. And so for a short period, the Muslims ceased their push to the north and instead turned south and began to put down some of these small isolated Roman fortresses and garrisons. Furthermore, there were some Christian Arab uprisings in the summer of 638. To help with these uprisings, Omar ibn al-Khattab sent some of the troops from Persia over to Syria to garrison some of these conquered cities and occupy them and make sure neither the Roman government nor the Christian population could rise up against the Muslims. Among the soldiers that Omar sent from Persia was the leader named Kaka, who we mentioned in the last episode, who was responsible for that final push of the Muslims that gave them that slight edge over the Persians during the Battle of Cardassia. Once Abu Ubaidah was certain that these rebellions were taken care of and that the Roman forces to the south were handled, he then continued his push up north, but he allowed Khalid ibn Walid and another leader named Iyad to handle this on their own. So Khalid ibn Walid and Iyad began an invasion of western Turkey in the fall of 638. So we are now just a little more than two years after the Battle of Yarmouk and Khalid ibn Walid has gone so far from just barely on the edges on the border between Arabia and Syria and now he was pushing into Anatolia into modern day Turkey and once again as you have heard many many times Khalid ibn Walid was victorious he and Iyad captured several cities and fortresses in Anatolia which is once again modern day Turkey and further extended the Muslim empire there was just one personal drawback with Khalid ibn Walid's successes, and this was his personal life. Khalid ibn Walid lived much of his adult life as a soldier. He was not a scholar like Abu Ubaidah. He was not an administrator like Muawiyah would be later on. He was a warrior, and he lived a warrior's lifestyle. There is a certain stereotype that we associate with sailors in modern time and Khalid ibn Walid had a similar way the man he faced death consistently all the time his life was on the line pretty much every single day so when he wasn't fighting the man enjoyed life he enjoyed life to the fullest he of course stayed within the boundaries of Islam but he was known to have many wives and being that this was a time when slavery was part of the way of life, he also had many slaves and with this, he therefore had many children. So while he was great on the battlefield, he wasn't all that great with his pocketbook. So he came into tons and tons of wealth, loads of wealth from all of the cities and fortresses and things that he conquered. But 
even though he he came into a lot of wealth very quickly, as soon as he got it, it would go out again. He would just spend it lavishly, just reward his soldiers, reward his commanders that had performed well for him. And while that may not fit into the narrative of the pious Muslim warrior that many of us are accustomed to, at the same time, can you really blame the man? After all, he faced death almost every single day. But this lavish lifestyle that he lived, and it wasn't really lavish, it was just very exuberant is what I would say, it eventually got back to Omar, who already didn't really care that much for Khalid Ibn Walid as it was, and Omar began to have some disagreements with some of the things that Khalid Ibn Walid was doing. There were two things in particular that really set the stage for Omar dismissing Khalid ibn Walid from the Muslim armies completely. First, there was the story that Khalid ibn Walid used to bathe in alcohol. Now, I want to be clear here that even though I went to great lengths to help you understand that Khalid ibn Walid enjoyed life, he still stayed within the boundaries of Islam. There is no reports, no indication that he ever drank alcohol himself. However, if you've ever rubbed alcohol on your skin, you notice that it brings a sort of cooling feelness to your skin. And also, we all know that alcohol is used today to disinfect cuts and wounds. And Khalid Ibn Walid and all the battles he had been in was covered in cuts and wounds and bruises. And so, while he may not have known the medicinal aspects of alcohol, it became known that Khalid Ibn Walid liked to bathe in alcohol. When Omar heard about this, he sent word to Khalid Ibn Walid telling him that this was haram. Khalid Ibn Walid, while he understood he was not at the same level of knowledge as Omar Ibn Khattab, who was one of the Prophet's closest companions, he disagreed with Omar's understanding of the prohibition of alcohol in Islam. Khalid ibn Walid felt that, and rightly so as we know now, that while it was not permitted to drink alcohol, it was okay to bathe in alcohol, and once again, it made him feel better. Most likely, he did not have any idea that he was perhaps saving his life and maybe disinfecting several wounds that could have led to further problems. And of course, neither did Omar. Omar accepted Khalid ibn Walid's explanation, but it is possible that this further helped turn Omar ibn Khattab against Khalid ibn Walid. And I don't want to say that it was a personal thing between Omar and Khalid ibn Walid. It just seems as if the two had several differences that just couldn't be worked out. However, the final straw for Omar ibn Khattab came when he heard that Khalid ibn Walid had given a poet 10,000 dirham for some poetry that he had composed. Once again, I told you that Khalid ibn Walid lived lavishly and enjoyed life, and one of the primary means of entertainment at that time for the Arabs was beautiful poetry. A poet came to the Muslim camp and began to recite some poetry extolling Khalid ibn Walid and his virtues and his victories, and Khalid ibn Walid, being the man he was, he gave the man 10,000 
Dirham. Khalid ibn Walid was flush with wealth. Remember, it came and went to him as quickly as possible. Nonetheless, when Omar heard about this, and Omar was strict and stern and very, very simple as far as his means of living, he recalled Khalid ibn Walid back to Medina to question him regarding the way he was living. In Omar's defense, however, Omar wanted to make sure that this money was not coming from the Muslim treasury and it was coming from Khalid's own pocket. In any case, Khalid ibn Walid had to obey the caliph and he returned to Medina and he was tried by Omar and ultimately Khalid paid back 20,000 dirham to the Muslim treasury. Khalid ibn Walid returned to Syria, but he essentially was sidelined by Omar from that point on, and Khalid ibn Walid never returned to battle. He settled down in the Syrian city of Emesa with his wife, but his spending habits didn't leave him with that much money. And even when he did come into money every now and then, he wasn't the type to use it wisely. Khalid ibn Walid simply couldn't live unless he was in battle. And even though he was a young man, he died barely five years after he left the military. These final years of Khalid ibn Walid in Syria and Emesa were actually spent in obscurity and almost in poverty. Unfortunately for Khalid ibn Walid, his ultimate wish, which was to die in battle, did not come true. Instead, he died when the plague swept through Syria and it took the lives of many Muslims. It is not clear whether Khalid ibn Walid was a victim of the plague. He was only in his early 50s. We will discuss the plague in much more detail in a later episode of the Islamic History Podcast. But for now, let's switch our focus to Persia, where the Muslim commander there, Sa'ad ibn Abi Waqqas, is planning an invasion of the Persian capital, Tessifan. After the resounding victory of the Muslims at Qadisiyah, Sa'ad ibn Abi Waqqas rested his military for a few weeks and then pointed his army towards the Persian capital and made his move. The capital is known as Tessifon, which is spelt C-T-E-S-I-P-H-O-N. That is the Greek name for it. However, for the Arabs, it was known as Madain. And just a little background information regarding the city of Tessifon or Madain. It was located roughly 20 miles southeast of modern Baghdad. It was originally founded in the year 120 BC before Christ by an ancient Persian people known as the Parthians. And it served as the capital of the Parthians for several centuries before it was captured by the Sassanids and it became the capital of the Sassanid dynasty. Under the Sassanid dynasty, the city of Tessifan continued to grow and became one of the most important cities in the world. And like many major cities at that time and even now, several smaller cities began to spring up around Tessifan until it was really one great big 
metropolis. And that's how it became known as Madain to the Arabs. Madain is the plural of the word Medina. Medina means city. Madain means cities. The Arabs called Tesifan Madain because it was a cluster of several cities. But to keep things simple, we're going to call it simply Tesifan. But keep in mind that in most Muslim literature, you would probably see it labeled as Madain as it was known by the Muslims at that time. After the Persian defeat at Cordesia, the Sassanid dynasty and all the nobles at Tassifan, they were in great fear. They had nothing between them and Sa'ad ibn Abi Waqqas and his military. Sa'ad ibn Abi Waqqas brought his army to the walls of Tessifan and immediately laid siege to the city. The city, once again, it was humongous with several smaller cities all around it. And Sa'ad ibn Abi Waqqas, he did his best to try to seal off all of the entrances and exits of the city. The Muslims by this time, they had learned about siege engines and catapults from their conquered Roman and Byzantine subjects. And so by now, the Muslims had catapults and they could launch huge boulders into Tessifan instead of just trying to starve them out like they used to. But despite all of these efforts by Sa'ad ibn Abi Waqqas to make sure no one could escape or enter Tessifan, the Sassanid royal family and much of the remainder of the army, they were able to find a way to slip out and escape from the city. Eventually, the Muslims learned that the Sassanid family had slipped out of the city and Sa'ad ibn Abi Waqqas led his army into Tessifan and they met absolutely no resistance. Meanwhile, the Sassanids and their few remaining loyal supporters in their army, they were running for their lives. They crossed the Tigris River, burnt all the bridges, and tried to set up a new capital in a different part further north of the Persian Empire. Meanwhile, in Tessifan, as soon as the Muslims had entered it and occupied it, hundreds and thousands of Persians began to accept Islam almost from the instant Sa'ad ibn Abi Waqqas stepped foot in there. And no, these were not forced conversions. For the most part, the Muslims of this era did not force people to accept Islam. They simply had to accept Muslim rule. But Sa'ad ibn Abi Waqqas and the Muslims in Persia were not finished just yet. After placing a garrison in Tessifan, Sa'ad ibn Abi Waqqas sent his army out. They continued to pursue the Sassanid family following their course along the Tigris River. And as the Muslim forces pushed north along the Tigris River, they continued to capture city after city after city. Let's construct a timeline of sorts if we can. The Battle of Cordesia took place in November 636. The capital, Tessifan, was captured by the Muslims the following year in March 637. From that point on, the Muslims continued to move forward. First, there was Tikrit in July 637. And then the Muslims conquered the city of Mosul in late 637. 
And finally, the city of Kufa was founded by the Muslims in the year 639, roughly two years later. The founding of Kufa was a result of the Muslim soldiers complaining to Omar ibn Khattab about the climate and the environment of Persia. It just didn't suit their desert Arab sensibilities that well, and many Arabs fell ill during their time in Persia. So Omar ordered Sa'ad ibn Abi Waqqas to find a place in Persia that was similar in climate and geography to the Arabian Peninsula. Eventually, the place that was found was a fort or a garrison that they named Kufa, and Kufa means a mound of sand because, once again, it was chosen to be as similar and as close to Arabia as possible. Around the same time that Kufa was being established, Roughly 240 miles southeast of the city of Mosul, the city of Basra was also born, and this was also created as a military garrison or a fort for the Muslim soldiers coming through Persia. Today, these two cities, Basra and Kufa, are major cities in Iraq. Today, Kufa has over 100,000 people and Basra has over one million. These two cities would not be the only Muslim garrisons that would turn into major cities. In later episodes, inshallah, you will learn how the Egyptian Muslim fort of Fustat became the city of Cairo. But that is an issue for another time. For now, we are going to shift our focus back to Syria and take a look at this awful plague that was claiming so many lives. All right, alhamdulillah. Well, I guess I got to do some explaining regarding the short episode that you've just heard. And yes, I understand that compared to the episode that came before it, uh, Yadmuk and Cordesia, which has some fairly detailed information regarding those two battles, you might consider this episode fairly light on content. And, you know, you may be right. But that is a minor sacrifice I've had to make because, inshallah, we are going to make this podcast, the Islamic History Podcast, a weekly show. This was what it was before, actually, in previous versions of this podcast and this been through several iterations, it has always generally been a weekly podcast. But recently, roughly six months ago, I started a new job and it's full time. And, you know, it's very difficult for me to do all the research I need to do and put together this podcast on a regular basis and still work 40 hours a week. It was just very difficult. So I, I still like creating the long episodes, but I realized that that was part of the problem. I was doing so much research trying to create these hour and 90 minute and two hour episodes. And so my solution is, yes, yeah, still create all of these episodes, these long episodes and do all this research, but instead break them down into smaller 30 minute parts and release them on a weekly basis. And so going forward, inshallah, while it will bring you much shorter episodes. On the upside, 
you will now get episodes, inshallah, on a regular weekly basis. And from my perspective, it's almost the same kind of work. Yeah, this is a little bit more work, but hopefully, and we'll see as we go along, hopefully not much more work because it's the same research and it's just now I'm breaking it down into much smaller pieces. So for you, I hope that you're happy with a 30 or 35 minute episodes. And for me, inshallah, it will hopefully make me feel better that I'm giving you content on a regular basis and that you don't have to wait a month or a month and a half for the next episode. We'll see how things go. Right now, before we close out, there are two reviews. The Islamic History Podcast got two reviews on iTunes that I would love to share. The first one comes from Bondarai 71 and he or she, can't really tell from the name, says, quote, great show. I love learning the history of Islam. I highly recommend it. Thank you, Bondarai 71 Whatever your gender, thank you very much. Alhamdulillah, I do appreciate it. And the second comes from Khalid, who says, quote, this is by far one of my favorite podcasts. I'm a casual listener, but I love how detailed and packed you make every episode. Thank you very much for doing this, and may Allah reward you for your effort. Unquote. Well, alhamdulillah, thank you, Khalid. And um, I hope that my going into a, a weekly podcast shorter version doesn't change your opinion. Believe me, I'm just doing it for the best. But alhamdulillah, don't just be a casual listener. Be a be a devoted listener. Listen every single week now. Well, we'll see, inshallah. But thank you for your comment. I truly, truly do appreciate it. These comments motivate me to continue producing the podcast because this is the way that I know people are enjoying it. So I know I say this all the time, but I'm going to remind you, please remember to subscribe to the Islamic History Podcast on iTunes. The link to it will be available in the show notes. And the show notes for this episode will be at islamiclearningmaterials.com slash 15AH. That is islamiclearningmaterials.com slash 15AH. One last thing before we wrap up. This month's bonus episode is called The Slander of Imam Bukhari, and it details the persecution of certain Muslims by the Abbasid Caliphate and how that impacted the reputation of Imam Bukhari of Sahih Bukhari fame. This episode is already available for members of the Elm Club, and it comes as part of their membership and part of their subscription. If you are not a member yet, I encourage you to do so. First of all, you will get these bonus episodes quicker than everybody else. Secondly, you don't have to pay extra for them. They come with the subscription. Finally, it helps to support the show and pay for things and keep things going here. You can join the club at the link which will be available at the show notes, which is islamiclearningmaterials.com slash 15AH. But if you are not a member of the Elm Club and you do not want to become one, it is okay. You can still download the slander of Imam Bukhari. And once again, the links will be in the show notes at islamiclearningmaterials.com slash 15AH.
H. And so with that, let's bounce on out of here to the Nasheed. Allah knows by Zain Bika and Dawood Warnsby Ali. Inshallah, talk to you next week. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. When you feel all alone in this world And there's nobody to count your tears Just remember no matter where you are Allah knows Allah knows When you're carrying a monster load And you wonder how far you can go Every grain of sand